Brown, uh, when I was, my goodness, I was about, I'm trying to remember now, I was probably about 30 years old, and a friend of mine was pastoring a church in Virginia, and the church grew from 35 to about 2,000 in three years. It was crazy, yeah. So he calls me up, and I was working a full-time job. He called me up, and we had met as students in Cambridge. And he said to me, Brian, the church has grown so fast. I need you to come and help me, and I will pay what you're making now, plus I'll give you a house. <laughs> At the time, I'm in a church that's no, I grew up in the church that I pastor, and it was, it, was not, it was not a good place to be. But the Lord had told me at 19 years old that I would pastor that church. And I remember I laughed at him because he knew that God called me to Cambridge. And I said to the Lord, I, I said to him, now, you know, I can't come. And we laughed and hung up the phone. And uh, one of the analysts on my job, Mike, degrees in accounting. Wasn't good at it, but got paid for it. And, and I remember hanging up the phone, and he looked at me, and he said, yo, B, you know, who was that? And I said, oh, it was a friend of mine. His church is going like crazy, and he said he would pay me if I would just leave. And he said, so he said, don't you want to be, isn't this what you want to do full time? And I said, yeah. And he said, and you said no? I said, yep. And he said, you're a fool. And, and I remember those days because as I look back and see what the Lord has done for us, um, I, I really admire your faithfulness that you got to know that you know that you know that you know that you're called to a place. And if the devil can't, if the devil can't scare you out, then he'll try to bribe you out. And so I honor you both for your your faithfulness and your commitment to what God has called you to do. Uh, before I preach, I think I sent the picture uh, so that you know. Yeah, I know you, you, you guys are. Yeah, okay. This is uh, our Christmas picture from last year, so this isn't like 10 years ago. Uh, <laughs> first of all, uh, this is my wife. And in and, 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 um, black church culture, they, they say this is the first lady. Uh, my wife says to me, I'm the only lady. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but that, <laughs> oh, that's why I'm still alive. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's my wife, Carmen. We've been married. We're going on 34 years of marriage. On, uh, I guess, the right is my oldest daughter, Vanessa. She will be 27 years old this year. And she's a teacher now. She teaches at the Baldwin School in Cambridge. Um, and uh, we waited seven years before we had children because we wanted to have fun. Uh, <laughs> on the left is my daughter, Jessica. She has her degree in social work. She works at two colleges, two, two high schools in, in Boston, um, very 
One of them rather dangerous uh, in the sense that uh, last June, one of her students was murdered right across the street from the high school. Uh, and and you know, as a parent, you want to say, uh, why don't you, why don't you, why don't you, uh, you know, teach in Wellesley or Watertown, someplace safe? Um, but we're called to the darkness. We're called to the darkness, and I'm really proud of her. She's a tremendous worship leader, and she actually ex accepted the call to the go uh, to preach the gospel. So she's going to Gordon Seminary next year. Uh, her and so that's my family to give you a little bit of notice about myself. Again, as I was raised in Cambridge, so I've seen a, I was raised in this area. I was actually raised, born in Cambridge, raised in Somerville, and then uh, we moved to Arlington. But I've seen a lot of ch lot of change in Cambridge, and I've been pastor now. I'm going on, I think it's 22 years, something like that, of pastoring. So let me get to my assignment here. And um, I want you to, well, you don't have to turn because it's probably on the screen, but if you have a device or whatever, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. And I've never heard this scripture spoken in the context about, of which I'm going to speak to you on it. Uh, but we'll see what the Lord does. It says, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, but as the believers, <laughs> what, what happened? Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're kind of like me, aren't you? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I love Daryl. Uh, when I'm in a real, real Pentecostal church, I use the King James. Makes me sound smarter. And the Lord saith. <laughs> yeah, you're probably saying, Pastor, where'd you get this guy from? <laughs> Can't believe he's a bishop. Uh, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers, that is the Hellenistic Jews, uh, complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, that is the Palestinian or Aramaic Jews, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the 12, that is the apostles, called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and of wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then the apostles can spend, then we, the apostles, can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Philip, Prochorus. Uh, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convent of the Jewish faith. These seven men presented to the apostles, were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted to I want to, um, this is probably the first time I don't even have a title for a sermon, so I'll just call it Hilltop Special. 
there, there, uh, this really, many um, people who speak this text, they, they talk to it, they speak about it from a, a um, position of a church organization, how to handle church growth, the first deacons, etc. cetera. Uh, but really, this text is born out of racism. And most people don't want to use that context because, after all, it's uncomfortable. But it really is. Um, you have two types of Jewish people here. You have Palestinian Aramaic Jews, and we talk about not Palestinian as in the Palestinians, but we're talking about those who were actually born in the region or the nation of Palestine. And then you have the Hellenistic Jews who were more, uh, they, they, they spoke Greek as their primary language. The uh, Hellenistic Jews, they spoke Hebrew. Not the Hellenistic Jews, the uh, Palestinian Jews spoke Hebrew, and the uh, Hellenistic Jews, they spoke Greek. They were part of the uh, diaspora. In other words, they were Jew, they, the Hellenistic Jews were Jews from all over the world, and they would probably come to uh, the Jerusalem to celebrate uh, three, three holidays. They'd celebrate a Shavuot, which is called Pentecost. Of course, they would celebrate the Passover, and they would celebrate uh, what actually we, well, not we, but Jews celebrated uh, last week, Sukkot, better known as the Feast of Tabernacles. So those are the three times that they would come together and they would celebrate. Well, of course, they come, Jews come from all over the world, uh, and Greek was the language that was spoken. Right now, English is the language. We, by God's grace, we were, uh, did some ministry in Romania last month, and a number of people spoke English. Uh, English seems to be the common language that's spoken around the world. Well, back then, it was Greek. And so what would happen is that the Greeks would come Jews, the, Greek, the Jewish Greek would come in for Pentecost, and of course, what happens? The power of the Holy Spirit falls, and uh, 3,000 people get saved, and then 5,000 people get saved. And what happens is that the Jews, particularly the Hellenistic Jews, when they came to Jerusalem, they got saved, and they said, well, let's, let's stick around and hear more of the apostles' teachings, and some decided to live in Palestine. So now you have... Uh, this season where the, the uh, Jews of the, uh, uh, who were Hellenistic and the Jews who were from Palestine, you have these individuals who now they're widows, uh, and Paul speaks about taking care of widows. They need to be ministered to, particularly with uh, food and whatever other resources they have. And unfortunately, it just so happened that the the uh, church was taking care of the Jews who were born in Palestine, that is the Jews who spoke Hebrew, as, a spoke, as opposed to the Jews who spoke Greek. Are you following me so far? And, that, and unfortunately, that was not by accident. It was not an oversight. And sadly, you see in the scripture how culture in the world can come into the church. Because, of course, Israel being a religious nation, they were guided by the Pharisees. And 
the Pharisees, there's still Pharisees in the church. Uh, they, they are still very, no, no, people who are very religious in the church, who uh, you have to dress a certain way, you have to look a certain way, you have to talk a certain way. And the Pharisees, they did not hide their contempt for any Jewish person who lived outside of Israel. So when they saw these individuals who were full of the world, full of the Greek culture, they kind of looked at them as second-class citizens. Are you following me so far? And, of course, now you, so you may say, well, okay, that's the Pharisees, but now we're talking about the church. We're talking about people who have come out of Judaism and have come into Christianity. But unfortunately, they carried some of their biases from their culture into the church. Hmm. It's interesting that we quote that scripture. They that be in Christ, they are what? New creations. Old things are passed away and behold, all things become new. Really? Sometimes all things don't become new. I was trying to figure out what's the difference between being prejudiced and being a racist. And I looked up the, the definition of the word prejudice, and of course in the word prejudice is the word prejudge. It means, at least this definition, an unfavorable opinion of a, or feeling formed beforehand without knowledge or thought or reason. I saw this in a website. It says, one can be prejudiced against or have a preconceived notion about someone due to their characteristics, which we may find either unusual or undesirable. So there can be prejudice against a person, but racism is different. Racism, and there's some synonyms from the word uh, uh, prejudice. Don't worry, I'll get to the good part. Uh, there is synonyms for prejudice is xenophobia. Xeno meaning foreign, phobia means fear, fear of foreigners, uh, which many of us may be here right now. Uh, as far as foreigners, that is not xenophobias. <laughs> People are like, what you talking about, man? <laughs> uh, there's bias. Bias is actually comes from a French word, which means slant or expedient, meaning that it is, it is expedient to be able to deal with people who are more like you than people who are not like you. Racism is another thing, though. Racism, racism is a belief or a doctrine. That's deep, a doctrine. It's more than just an opinion. Like, prejudice is an opinion, but racism is a doctrine. It's a teaching that inherent, inherent differences among various human racial groups determine cultural or individual achievement, usually involving an idea that one's race is superior and has the right to dominate others, or a particular racial group is inferior to others. That means uh, some synonyms are uh, bigotry, some synonyms are discrimination. So you have some racist 
things that can be said based on a group. I remember my brother, um, we went to, we both went to a Catholic school called Matinon. It's in North Cambridge. And I remember, uh, you know, I'm three years older than my brother, so I'm a senior now, and he's a freshman. I'm like, you know, house school. And he said, um, Brian, uh, it's, it's 8.30 in the morning, and I'm, you know how you're a student, and you're 8.30. It's 8.30, you're tired. When we were children, that's pre-Starbucks. <laughs> and you're just like, I'm just happy to be here. And the nun, sister, sister says, because we had nuns back then, the name of the Patria de Fili, Spirit Sante. I couldn't understand why my parents would send a Pentecostal to a Catholic school, but that's another story. <laughs> I've gotten over it. I've gotten over it. But I remember, the nun, bless her heart, the nun says to my brother, and he's the only black in the class, Mr. Green. And he's like, yeah, can you tap dance? And he was like, like, those are fighting words. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, she, bless her heart. She's, but see, there's a preconceived idea that all black people can dance. All black people can sing. All black people have, are good athletes. Some of you say, really? They're not? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Preconceived idea that all Asians are good in math. Preconceived ideas that all white people think they're better than everybody else. Preconceived idea that all Hispanic people are fill in the blank. Those are, those are racist thoughts, even if they're complimentary. One of the pastors, and, and I'm careful about this. I think being a person who was raised in a, in a, uh, in a neighborhood that was kind of diverse, I'm very careful about language and questions you ask. One of the pastors, and you've probably seen uh, Pastor Ford, he's about six foot nine, and he's black. So the first thing that one may ask is, do you play basketball? And he would say, no. Now, the question, do you play basketball, is not a racist question. A, waste, a racist statement would be, what a waste of height on a black man. And we may not say it, but we may kind of think it. I want to talk to you briefly about my journey and, and then hopefully how to help our churches. Because I, I want to make an impartation because this, you, you are the hope of Cambridge. And I'm not talking about you so much hilltop, but your generation is the hope of Cambridge with regards to the coming of the kingdom of God in this city. Uh, and just to tell you my background so that you can understand, uh, in some instances, why I'm so passionate about this. Uh, as I told you, my, my mother decided to take me out of public school 
when I was in the eighth grade, I was 13 years old, she took me out of public school and sent me to Matlon Catholic School. And, and I, 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 to be honest with you, I was so angry that she did that because I, you know, I was, if you're familiar with junior high school, junior high school goes from seventh to ninth grade, at least in Somerville. So in the ninth grade, you're actually like the senior. And you're the big man on campus. And it's around that time that you start liking girls. And, well, I'm not, at least back then it was. I'm not sure what's going on now. But, <laughs> no, back, but, and what I mean by that is not, now I gotta be careful now, I'm not, anyways, <laughs> let me just, I just got myself in trouble, so let me just, let me just keep it moving. <laughs> So, anyways, uh, you start, you know, liking girls, and you and you also wanna, you know, impress them. So, by God's grace, I was a good athlete, and I was gonna be captain of all the football team, the basketball team, the baseball team. I was gonna be the big man on campus. I'm going into the eighth to the ninth grade, and my mother takes me out of junior high school and puts me in Matinon High School, and now. I am a freshman, so like in one summer, I go from top dog to starting all over again. And, 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 and I, was, I was in school during the time of, for you it's history books, but for me it was actually lived it and during busing, uh, which was a very tough, dangerous time. There's certain parts of Cambridge that you could not walk in to as a black person, and there are certain parts of Cambridge you couldn't walk in as a white person. It was just dangerous. A um, lot of racial tension, uh, busing with South Boston and Charlestown, and it was just a real dangerous time. And so now I'm going to Matinon High School where there are people from all over Boston who go there, particularly sections of Somerville and sections of Cambridge, S South Boston, Charlestown, areas that do not like black people. There are only two blacks in my entire class. So I'm in this, I go into the boys' room, and there's this guy who from a section of Somerville that I know hates black people. And he looks at me, and he calls me a black bastard. And my response is, now you gotta understand, I'm, I'm a Christian. So now there is the, I am, this, this white guy said this to me, and, and he's a senior, and I know he can beat me up, but because of where I live, within about a five or 10 minute walk is a bunch of my older black friends who I know I could call to come down here to this Catholic school and handle some business. So I, ha I am torn between being a believer and being a black man. And 
And to be faced with that kind of decision at 14 is, and, and, and you have the Holy Spirit saying, remember, you're a believer. But you have this other sense of you like, you know what, you know, we can, we can, really, we can really make sure this doesn't happen again. During that time, there was times when people would, you know, they'll ride by and or even at school and call you the N-word, et cetera. And then I remember at 16, I was working at McDonald's, my first job, and I remember I was the only uh, black on the, on the entire uh, staff. This was McDonald's and some were actually still there in Davis Square, but it just opened and I was hired and working there. And I remember I had this supervisor who every time he was on, he would always assign me to sweep the lobby or clean the bathrooms. And I remember, I remember uh, sitting for my review for my five cent raise. <laughs> and I remember, I remember him looking me in the eye and saying, Brian Green, and he's looking at his paper, and then he says to me with this look of disdain, who is Brian Green? And he said it basically saying, you're nothing. Now, me being an athlete, me being competitive, um, something in me said, I'm going to show you who Brian Green is. And I want to say this because some of you have had people in your life who have said things and you can still hear their voice, even now. They said things to you when you were five, six, seven, eight, and now you are 18, 19, 20, 30, and you still hear their voice. And I just really, re I, I, I'm, I'm going to be 58 in January. You're supposed to say you don't look that old. Thank you very much. Uh, and it was only this year that I realized that that man's voice has been a driving force in my ministry. And, and anything that's a driving force in your life other than Jesus is an idol. And... What I remember when I was, when, when the Lord hit me with that, I remember saying to myself, because I remember saying to myself that as, as the church was growing and God was doing things, I, I always had this voice saying, um, we're, we're going to do things you know, professionally, we're going to do things top. And I remember uh, uh, there are times when we would have a conference and or Sunday morning, and the worship team's singing a song, and the words are not on the screen. And I know that doesn't happen here, but um, the words are not on. <laughs> and rather than me just worshiping the Lord, I'm looking at the screen like, where the mess are these words? I, I did say mess. Where the mess are these words? And instead of worshiping the Lord, I know the words, but I'm thinking these visitors, visitors are going to think we're incompetent. 
and I'm, and I'm getting angry. And I realize the reason why I'm getting so angry instead of administering grace is because I'm being driven by this white guy who told me 40 years ago that I'm nothing. What's driving you? What hurtful words, what context you came out of that's still driving you, that's saying, I'm going to show. When the bottom line is, is that even if you are a high achiever, if anything's driving you outside of the Holy Spirit, you're still in bondage. And that'll have an effect on your marriage. It'll have an effect on how you raise your kids. Fast forward, our organization, um, I'm bishop of an organization called the United Pentecostal Council of the Assemblies of God Incorporated. And, and our organization will be 100 years old next year. We were formed out of racism. Uh, a black man in Chicago, he was a, I guess he was a porter. And all of a sudden he feels this call to do missions work in Liberia. A black man is called to do missions work in Liberia. Not Russia, not Poland, not Italy, Liberia, Africa. He goes to the AG and says, God has called me to do missions work in Liberia. And they told him, it is not God's will for a black man to do missions work in Africa. He hears about these immigrant pastors from the West Indies in Cambridge, so he travels a thousand miles by train to Cambridge. We formed this organization called the United Pentecostal Council of the Assemblies of God, and we send him to Africa. Fast forward a thousand, not fa fast forward rather, not a thousand years. I'm going to help you. He, please, I did two services this morning, and I am out of my mind. So. Fast forward about 90 years, 95 years, and uh, our presiding elder writes this letter to George, George Wood, who is the, the superintendent of the um, AG, and tells him the story about this act of racism. And George Wood, he's a, that is a man of God. He, he, he reaches out. AG is the largest Pentecostal organization in the world. Uh, David Yogi Cho, if you heard of him, or Paul Yogi Cho, he keeps changing his name, but you know who he is. Uh, uh, he's part of the AG. Uh, there's a just, you know, uh, Tommy Barnett's part of the AG. Uh, so huge organization. He writes us and he says, and, and he says, I want to, I want to meet with you. Anyways, we have this. We fly down there uh, to their headquarters in, in uh, Springfield, Missouri. Uh, those folks got the AG got money. Oh, Lord have mercy. We stay in in a double tree that they own. Lord have mercy. <laughs> that they own. And and so we're there and and we're trying to act like you know cool like like you no know, our, our headquarters is like a room 
and and you know you're walking through the their their publishing firm and and their their offices they have, they their headquarters they have like three to four hundred workers at their headquarters full time workers and we're walking through there and I'm trying to you know you're trying to act cool like oh yeah that's, that's a big deal everybody else is like oh my god oh my god oh my god this is incredible so he so we signed this agreement basically saying that we're going to work together. Uh, but I'm going to be transparent. Our first meeting, we're sitting at this, in this gorgeous boardroom with all of um, his executive staff. And there's a, there's a sense, particularly among black people, there's a because as as black people i know me i'm i'm probably the last one to to really notice racism uh, you know i drive some of my colleagues crazy because they'll say that's racist and i'll say well maybe because you know i'm always trying to you know, you really have to do something racist for me to say, you know what, all right, I've given you, and no, the, the blood can't cover that. No, only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> only kidding. Only kidding. Lord have mercy. <laughs> but I, I, we're in the room, and although George Wood is, is embracing us, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting, I'm not getting, I'm not feeling the love at the table. And you no, know, we got back, and I'm like, you know what? I think they're acting like they're doing us a favor. And my point is, is that as a, when you are a majority in whatever situation you are, you have to be very careful about how you treat people who are the minority. And here's the funny thing. In my church, most of the people in our church are, you know, are black. And we got to be careful how we treat those who are white. I mean, it goes both ways. So anyways, uh, by the grace of God, we signed this agreement, and we're working towards this whole recon you know, racial reconciliation thing. It's a wonderful thing. Now we get to Cambridge. And, and what I want to do is I'm basically trying to give you a lay of the land because in the final analysis, there's a spirit that we have to destroy here in the city of Cambridge, and you're the generation to do it. Uh, and I want you to get an understanding so as we, be, as we pray into what God wants to do, because I really believe that you know, at the age of about 20, the Lord showed me an open he- uh, uh, an open heaven over, well, it was over our church at the, you know, at the time, but I realized that it's really over the city as I was involved with the original call with Lou Ango and Dutch Sheets and then came around the year 2000 around then, and, and that was a wonderful time. And I realized that other people were starting to hear that revival is going to take place, and it's going to begin in this area. Praise the Lord. And it, it's, it's wonderful to know that you and I can be a part of history. Again, you and I can be a part of history. Again, you and I can be a part of 
his story. He's about to do something in this city. And I used to be upset, God, why are you taking so long? But I realized that God has got to raise up another generation that's not bound by racial stuff. See, I'm a child. Uh, no, I, I was alive when Martin Luther King was murdered. I was alive when all the riots took place in all the major cities. And, and, and whether I like it or not, that there's a deposit from demonic spirits that kind of saturate the atmosphere that God needs to raise up another generation to move aside so that he can do, so that the king of glory can come in. Is this making sense? About 10 years into my pastorate, um, I really, uh, by the grace of God, God supernaturally uh, brought into my life uh, the founder of, um, of Cambridge Vineyard, their you know, reservoir church now. We know the situation there. If you don't know, ask your pastor. Um, but the founder of that church uh, and the founder of Cambridge Community Fellowship Church, where Larry Kim is pastor, uh, is pastor, the founder of that church, and another pastor by the name of Dan Zantowski. He's the, he's the pastor of um, uh, Cambridge Port Baptist Church. Uh, pastor Larry Ward, Pastor Wong, about six of us got together and we became prayer partners which was, I don't think that was something, I don't think that was ever done before in Cambridge where, uh, where uh, you know, white men and black men and Asian came together and we would pray every month together. And because I spent a lot of time praying for them, they became my brothers. So, uh, yeah, well, uh, Bethany, she preached at, we have this thing called the seven last words, where you take seven pastors and they preach uh, one word with regards to the seven last words of Jesus. Now, one would preach, I thirst. Another would preach, uh, it is finished. And, and for the first few years, uh, it was all nothing but black pastors who would preach. And it was basically, I called it the Sanctified Preacher Contest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, everybody would show off their preaching skill. I'm, <laughs> I, no lie. I remember every, 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 every again, I'm, I'm doing black church now, so, you know, I'm educating some of you. But every black preacher wants it is finished. Because that's like, you know, that's like, and he said, he dropped his head. Ha! And he said, and, and, the, and the Hammond organ's back there. And, uh, it is finished. Ha! It is finished. Ha! And, the, and the audience is going, ah, preach. So, me and my multicultural church self, I know that I, you know, I mean, I, I can't do that every week and, and expect to have a diverse congregation. So I'm just preaching, you know, I'm speaking, I'm talking like this, it is finished. And, and the next guy, 
the next guy, no lie, the next guy who had another word, he basically said, you didn't do that right. I'm going to preach your word like it should have been preached. So he, he preached it as finished. And, and part of me was like, you know what? You know what? I'm saved. So now, you know, there's only, so, there's only so many black churches in Cambridge. You do realize that, don't you? And after about like 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you, you figure, let's do something different. So me and some of the pastors said, hey, let's, let's invite some of the white pastors and Asian pastors to speak. So back then, I was not like the senior pastor guy. I was just like a junior pastor because there were a number of guys there who passed along to me. So we suggested it, and they're like, uh, okay. So uh, uh, Dave Smelter, who's a founder of uh, Vineyard Church, uh, Sunya, remember his name now. But anyway, the founder of came uh, Sun Chen Ra. He preached uh, dan, uh, dan, the, my, our prayer partners, uh, they preached. And it was a powerful, I mean, it, no. And it's funny, it's funny that the congregation gets things before the pastors do. And so the congregation, these are black people like, this is great. Yes. Wow. This is wonderful because they're listening to pastors who they would never listen to in their context. They, they were actually exposed. I, I believe that some of them never heard a white pastor speak live in their life. I believe that. And forget Asian. I believe that. I believe that. And so they were like, this is great. So no lie, no lie. The next year we sat down. Everybody said it was great. We said, hey, let's do this again. No lie. The pastor said, no, we don't want to do this again. And one pastor said, one pa- I'll never forget this as long as I live. He said, I work with them. I go to school with them. I don't want, about, white, about white people. I don't want to do church with them. And they shut it down. Are you following me? They shut it down. Fast forward. <laughs> Excuse me. The spirit of anger came up on me. Fast forward. Now we, a group of us, became the senior pastors in the city. And that's when we started exposing our congregation to other men of God, women of God, who are Asian who are black, who are white. And there's no, there's no, there's just people who want to bring the body of Christ together. And I think that's because there's a new generation who's rising up and basically saying, I am determined to see the kingdom of God go forward. 
Now, the is always going to be a challenge to pastor a church that is multicultural. My church, at least four years ago, we did an informal survey. It almost shocked the life out of me. Our church, two-thirds of our congregation weren't even born in the United States. And so I, I just want to challenge you as I finish here, and as a preacher, I get four closes. Um, no, I can't. I'll finish. Yeah, um, I want to challenge you. <laughs> it's funny, like, he's, he's, he's really serious about this. <laughs> I, I want to close with this. That there's some things that you can do to make sure that the church feels like it's diverse. Of course, number one, I'm always of the mentality that diversity isn't diversity until I see it in the leadership. And I'm not talking about just putting people in positions just to make sure that you're doing window decorating, but I'm talking about putting people in positions where the people who come in of color or or people who are of the minority in the congregation can see, okay, yeah. And, and if you can't, and if you don't have, and the other thing you can do is to make sure that you get speakers in your pulpit who are diverse. When I was away, I, I go, I, I, I take the month of August off, so last month I had, uh, Bethany came and spoke at our church. She 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 represented you very well. <laughs> Amen. I, that's why uh, our church loved her. That's why she'll never preach at my church again. <laughs> 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 Only because she was she was fantastic. But I wanted I wanted I wanted them to see. She, she, I got a two for out of her. I wanted them to see that. I mean, we always have Caucasians in our church. Uh, speak, but I wanted to have a woman. I had Larry Kim speak, an Asian. I, I'm always making sure that our congregation is exposed to diversity. One of the most powerful things that happened to me in this city was this year. I am so excited what happened. I was having, uh, I was having lunch with uh, Pastor Rick Downs, he pastors Christ the King Presbyterian Church. And, and again, because we were, this beautiful, because we had invited him to do the last 10 days, we became friends. And so we're having lunch, and I say, I say to Rick, see, see, once you spend time with people, then you can go there. You know anybody go there? Oh, so we went there, so I said, I said, hey, Rick. Have you ever had any black people speak at your church? Oh, I went there. <laughs> and, and, and Rick looks at me and he went, and he went, um, and he's, you know, you do the look in the sky. <laughs> uh, and he went, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And I said, no, I said, you know what? Because it took you that long. <laughs> so I said to him, well, how about this? If you don't know, you know maybe you don't know any black pastors or but you know how about how about how about we do a pulpit swap in two weeks it's gonna be Martin Luther King's birthday weekend how about you preach at my church 
and I preach at your church. And so on that Sunday before Martin Luther King's birthday, you have a black Pentecostal pastor speaking at a predominantly Caucasian Presbyterian church. <laughs> oh, it was wonderful. So I got in the pulpit and I said, everybody say amen. No, I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I did give a prophecy in tongues, though. No, I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I didn't do that either. I didn't do that. I was, I was, oh, I was so behaved. I was like, Holy Ghost, don't do anything here. Don't do anything. La, 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 no, <laughs> but it was it was it was the most powerful thing. It was the most powerful thing. I believe heaven was pleased. And he came to our church and our church is like you. We go at it. Like I mean we go at it like you. And he got up there, I'll never forget his first words were This is wonderful. <laughs> there you go. I want to let you know that I'm dancing on the inside. <laughs> oh, I love Rick. I love Rick. But there's a new generation of pastors, a new generation. And one of the things why the, you know, the God, by his grace, he's opened up the kingdom concert for us. And, and, I, I, and I believe my life is like Joseph's. Um, the new city manager of Cambridge, if you familiar, Cambridge is the most important, powerful city position in the city. Um, the new city manager, I've known him for 40 years. Uh, God blessed me that I actually worked at City Hall and, and on and on and on. And so God opened the door for us to do, you know, preach the gospel and now sing the gospel on the steps of City Hall. And I realized that God, that God was saying that's not, that door was not open just for Pentecostal Tabernacle. It's not a Pentecostal tabernacle concert. It's the kingdom concert. And so I work hard to invite, you know, uh, your church, uh, Aletheia, Western Baptist, uh, CCFC. Just Cambridge needs to see the kingdom. The hope of the world is not the White House. It's the church house. And if we would just allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts where it doesn't matter what church you go to as long as we're about the kingdom, Cambridge will be changed. Because sooner or later, Cambridge is going to have to step back and say, there's something that the church is doing that we can't seem to get together. Maybe we allow their voice to be heard in government. Amen. Let's all stand.